0: This episode of Goodwill Hunters is brought to you by The Intrepid Group, the company making travel a genuine force for good. As you know, in this pod, we talk a lot about how to partner with and have a positive impact on communities all over the world. Having spent the past eight years travelling through some of the most spectacular and challenging countries, I know for sure tourism is one of the greatest forces for good when done properly. Intrepid is a certified B Corp specialising in sustainable small group travel, offering over 2,700 trips through four tour operator brands. I've done an Intrepid tour in Myanmar and I can tell you they deliver on their commitment to responsible tourism. They are committed to working with local guides, to reducing their environmental footprint and giving back to the people and places they visit. Visit intrepidgroup.travel and change the way you see the world. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here we'll explore the ultimate question how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not for profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? We talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 39 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Kat Dunn. Kat is the CEO at Grameen Australia and a board member at Food Frontier. Kat describes herself as a corporate refugee turned social entrepreneur with the belief that when we apply the tool of business to tackle complex social problems together, we can change the world. So it sounds like Kat's ethos is pretty much identical to that of this show. Kat, it's wonderful to have you here. Thanks for chatting to me.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Rachel.
0: Okay, so could we start... um, I, I love Grameen Australia. I, I know what you do, and I'm a Thank huge you. fan, um, but our guests may not know so much. So could you start by telling us um about Grameen Australia and about your role there?
1: Absolutely. Um Grameen Australia is founded on the principles of a Nobel Peace Prize winner named Professor Muhammad Yunus, who, in two thousand and six with Grameen Bank, actually won the Nobel Prize for developing a tool called microfinance, which enabled, financially excluded low-income entrepreneurs to be able to get working capital so that they could start their own businesses and be able to provide a livelihood for their families. And these entrepreneurs were mostly women. Now, microfinance uh, as a tool has been replicated all around the world, including in developed countries like America. And as one of the things that Grameen Australia is doing um, is bringing microfinance to Australia as well. But what Grameen Australia does, and many people often call us Grameen Bank Australia because they think we're a subsidiary of Grameen Bank Bangladesh, but actually not. We're um, a domestic Australian originated charitable entity. We're a not-for-profit with Public Benevolent Institute uh, status. And we are actually uh, very much wholly owned in Australia with the goal of developing, growing and bringing social business to this country. What that means is we believe that Australia is a prosperous nation, but there are so many areas of disadvantage that remain unsolved. And the hypothesis that we have is the current models for solving those social problems, which are charity and government are broken or at the very least incomplete. And we believe that two of the problems to be solved for are one, the sustainability of getting resources to be able to solve social problems and to the agility and the ability to innovate, to be able to respond to an accelerating environment. Um, and there is one such tool that can do this and that's the social business tool. So Grameen Australia is developing the social business ecosystem based on the principles of Professor Muhammad Yunus. So
0: if you could pick an organisation that is completely aligned with this show, I think that would be it. <laughs> oh,
1: amazing.
0: So that's that's really good to hear. I think... Um, I think you've just said something really interesting there, though, that the government and charity as the traditional ways of solving for social problems are broken. Um, Mm. I think that's probably a really good statement for us to start with. Um, So what do you mean by that? Why are they broken?
1: I think one of the problems with charity, and I wouldn't say at all that. In every case, a charity isn't the right way to solve a social problem because there are just so many things that can't be solved by finding a market solution. So that's the first thing. But with a charity, when you invest a dollar or donate a dollar into a charity, it gets consumed. Um, that's why it's called not for profit. Uh, it's a grants model. The challenge with that is what happens when grants run out? Um, where does the money come from? Often you find operationally the people that are running the charities who are amazing, have great hearts, great passion, really know what they're doing to solve a social problem, are often uh, distracted by the task of fundraising to keep the business afloat, which is a really um, challenging thing when you're trying to solve complex social problems. They're getting bigger and bigger all the time, trying to find the resources to keep up with being able to deploy those solutions is quite hard if you don't have your own internal revenue or resource generating engine to back you. So that's the first problem. Um, and and ancillary to that is one of the things that charities might do when they're seeking funding is if a donor comes to them and says they've got you know x amount of dollars and they can invest in the charity, but the charity has to do a specific project. The risk for the charity is that it can, run into something called mission drift and that is moving away from its core mission or its core skill set so that it can uh, meet a donor's mandate that's not exactly aligned just in the service of getting that money. So what happens when the money runs out and in the pursuit of money you end up with mission drift. So that's a problem I think with charity. And then the challenge with government is that it is so steeped in process and bureaucracy that in an environment which is increasingly becoming uh, very decentralised, where technology and communication are meaning that information, knowledge, technology can be created and deployed at a fast speed. It's not designed for agility. It's not designed to be able to respond to disasters, let alone uh, you know crises. That are they're not designed to respond to the needs of society as it evolves, including some of the unintended consequences of technological disruption, things like unemployment. There aren't um, the policies to evolve fast enough so that traditional delivery of social solutions can happen at the pace it needs to. And so what we mean by that is if you have the current models being too slow and uh, not responsive and also at a risk of having resources drained from them, it really compromises the core of what these solutions are trying to do, which is solve the social problem.
0: I think that's a really good explanation. And what it's reminding me of is we had Paul Ronalds on the show a few weeks ago, who's the CEO of Save the Children.
1: and mm, He's amazing.
0: He's amazing, yeah. And Paul, I think, shares a lot of your views and he made the statement um, the not-for-profit sector is not currently sustainable. Which is a really big call um, for us to say that the not-for-profit sector is not currently sustainable, but, you know, due to the forces that you've spoken about, due to the fact that the sector is being disrupted so much with changes in the way the mass market funds the charitable sector, I, I tend to agree with that statement as well. Um, so I think what would be good is if you can explain why social business can do what government and charity are struggling to do.
1: Well, at its core, the thing that social business charity and government all share is that they're intending to solve social problems or intending to improve society. But the way that they do it is different. And the way that a social business does this is that instead of solving a social problem through a handout model or giving out money, it plugs a business engine behind the solution. So the business is really different to a traditional for-profit business. Because it's designed to make revenue and money, but it's not designed to optimise the profits from that to go back to maximising shareholder returns. It's actually a business that's designed to solve a social problem. And and why business is chosen is that it's really at its core just an organising tool to achieve concrete goals. But the way that our economic assumptions are designed is that, We believe that the only concrete goals that human nature really cares about are selfish goals. And selfish goals are self-interest, and we've defined self-interest as profit. Um, And we would say that that's a really incomplete or very narrow way of defining the human spirit because human nature is beyond just selfish. And yes, while you have selfish components, you also have elements of selflessness, compassion, generosity, and altruism. There's no business models that are, created really to express those parts of human nature but if you use business just as an organizing tool then you can express those parts of human nature to solve human problems and contribute to the world to contribute to a better world. Now a social business is designed one to solve the social problem, two it must be viable because if it's not a viable business with a viable market then it just becomes charitable and continues to have the problem of being unsustainable, three Unlike a traditional charity, investors or donors into social business can get up to 100% of their capital returned when the business is viable. Uh, Four, unlike a traditional for-profit business, when it makes dividends, they don't get returned to the shareholder, but they instead get hosed back into the business to continue to solve the problem at scale. The fifth component of it is that it has to have Uh, equal to or better than pay and working conditions to traditional market or traditional business. Um, It has to have gender parity in the way that it employs people and it has to be environmentally friendly. And with the social business principles advanced by Eunice, the seventh principle is actually do it with joy, right? Like changing the world and running business is hard enough as it is, but the type of people that will really thrive in a social business landscape are the ones that have a contributory nature and who come at things not from a place of obligation, but from a place of joy, they delight in being able to deploy their talents, their skills, their financial acumen to helping other people instead of just helping themselves.
0: I love that. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Is is social business, um, is this a legal business structure or is the definition of a social business that you've just explained sort of a requirement to work with Grameen Australia?
1: So it's... Um, The design of the business and the legal structure is a different beast entirely. So you can have a social business that's set up as an Australian not-for-profit, like Humanitix, for example, Mm -hmm. um, which is a social business ticketing company and 100% of the profits from booking fees get reinvested back to uh, children's education. So none of it goes to the shareholders. who are the two founders. Um, So you could set up as a not-for-profit or you could be a for-profit business. Uh, And you could choose the legal structure depending on your needs um, and where you want to be able to get your investment from. So, social business is the design of the business um, as distinct from the legal setup of the business itself from a corporate perspective.
0: Okay. Okay. Right, interesting. I think before we delve into that any deeper, I'm really interested in how you got to this point and you describe yourself as a corporate refugee. <laughs> yeah. Um so, can you can you describe what you mean by that and how you um how these views developed for you?
1: Um I think that like technically I'm a legal refugee because my background was in law. Um and growing up as a kid in country western Australia, I had aspirations to change the world and I was really enamoured by becoming a human rights lawyer. But then when I went to law school, I got pretty much sucked into the groupthink um, in that environment which said that, you know, you were really funnelled into these corporate commercial jobs and all the top students would, you know, go and choose that. When I went for my grad roles, uh, I, you know, almost unthinkingly, I just did what everybody did, applied for all the top tier firms and I ended up getting a clerkship at a firm called Clayton Newt's in banking and finance law. And even then, I was feeling these signals of dissonance in my body. I could sense that my values and my desire to contribute to a better world were consistent with my experience in that workplace. I found it to be, um, yeah, I found it to be really reductive. And so I thought, well, maybe it was just the type of law I was doing. So I explored lots of different types of law to MA and private equity. And then I ended up in a commercial role because I was like, well, maybe my entrepreneurial spirit can be deployed in a commercial way. And I worked at a fund manager and became super senior, and I was like, ah, by the time, you know, I get to the upper echelons of ASX-listed worlds, I will understand what the noble purpose is that all of these other senior leaders are aspiring to. And it will finally dawn on me this thing that I've been missing the whole time, and the dissonance will dissolve, and I'll finally understand what everyone's chasing at the top. And I ended up getting appointed to the senior leadership team. And I remember looking around and thinking, whoa, this is not what was advertised at law school. I thought that at this level, there would be more of a spirit of contribution and more of a spirit of, you know, how can we leave the world in a better place than when we found it? But instead, I found it was quite people were just there for the money. People were just there to try and preserve their jobs rather than transform their environment. And I had a real kind of existential crisis. I was just thinking, well, you know, what am I doing here? It's not the place for me. Um, I ended up quitting my job, actually, at the height of my corporate career uh, without another one to go to. And that was really um, unconventional from a cultural perspective because, you know, my mother's Filipino and very much about having a safe, uh, financially secure job after being educated, and I also didn't see any of my peers doing that. I was 33 when I did it. Most of my friends were getting married and having kids and down the path of financial stability and not rocking the boat. Um, and I, so what I call myself a corporate refugee or a legal refugee, it's somebody who has um, issued a path that others have labelled to be the golden ticket to success um, in pursuit of safer harbours or, you know, something that was more consistent or congruent with what my heart really wanted to do. And that was be able to use my skills that were sharpened at university and these corporate firms, but to be able to deploy them to social good. And so that's how I ended up uh open to opportunities
0: (laughs) it's such a huge life transformation it's kind of it's hard to articulate um that into words but you've done it really well and I and I think what you're talking about there reminds me a lot of um I read an article in the New York Times recently and it was about the second mountain have you read this no no It's really cool. So it's about how you have this first mountain in life, which is you doing all the things that you think you'll enjoy because you have Mm. to, like climbing that career ladder that that you think is going to make you really happy because you know everyone you know finished school and went to uni and got a corporate job and that's just what you do. And then it's sort of you get to the top of that first mountain and you're like, oh, this isn't what I wanted. And then life really begins when you start climbing the second mountain, which is the far Mm. more – well, exactly the one that you've just described there. And I I think it's really exciting to hear you talk about it.
1: Thank you. I've always felt like really uneasy with the proposition that you have to choose between being either a greedy capitalist or a starving humanitarian and never the twine shall meet, or you have to choose between making a living or making a difference and you can't do both. And it seems to me that, um, the best parts of the charity and not-for-profit world combined with the best parts of the business world can be so powerful in being able to um, satisfy both needs, one of financial security and resources, but secondly of that kind of higher order needs to be able to contribute to something greater than yourself.
0: Yeah, definitely. Let's let's talk about why that is. Like, why do you think we have had this very mutually exclusive relationship between the not-for-profit sector and the private sector historically? Like, what's driven us to keep them so separate?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, the cynical part of me would say that the greedy capitalists of years gone by uh, had to deploy their... You know part of their wealth to charity is a way for making up for the, the the sins of their extractive capitalism. Um, and so you could never really um, combine the two because it was one was meant to be the salvation for the other. But I think that's a very cynical answer. Um but more modernly, I think that what I certainly saw in corporate was that the idea of social purpose or CSR or contributing to society, to society was seen as an externality of the business. That the business's goal—it comes down to this fundamental principle: that the economic principle that um, businesses are designed around the human nature being selfish. And so, if the purpose of a business is profit maximization, then anything that doesn't maximize profits is just is a luxury, a furphy, or uh, an extracurricular activity. And so I think that's how that distinction has been created. And often you see in corporate that the CSR or charitable or purpose-led area is seen as kind of the poorer cousin of the main business rather than a lever for the business itself to truly succeed and to truly reach clients and customers and the rest of the world. Um, so I would say that there's, yeah, the distinction comes from the economic principle that we are fundamentally selfish, and we've designed businesses around that. And anything that is incongruent with that fundamental principle is externalized.
0: In your view, what what is the ideal role of the private sector nowadays? Like, is there a role for the private sector in supporting social business, or where do you see them fitting into the puzzle?
1: I think it's um it's, it's so strange that we even have distinguished the private sector from the broader ecosystem of humanity at all, um, because, you know, you and I as people, we go into business as employees, as superannuants, we are shareholders of many businesses and we are customers and consumers of the products that these businesses create. Um, But first and foremost, out of any of this, we're citizens, we're we're citizens and we're all part of the broader ecosystem. And so it's a bit of a, 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 almost a false distinction that the private sector is this thing apart from the rest of society, or go can have its own set of rules as if it wasn't tied to society at all. But one of the things that I think is really powerful that the private sector can do is be able to think about how it deploys its efficiencies and its tools to being able to solve social problems. And the biggest example I have of this, other than microfinance, is the example of Danone, the French yoghurt company, which actually created a social business with Grameen. And the problem that they were solving for was malnutrition in some of the poorer rural areas of Bangladesh. Now, the challenge there was, well, how do you actually get nutrients to these you know, low income children at a price that could be afforded by them and their families. What Danone and Grameen did was they are would a type of yogurt that could, in two serves, uh, satisfy the nutrition needs of children all across Bangladesh. And they created a two tiered pricing system for this product. The first tier would be a premium price product that was sold into the cities. And and the second tier was the exact same product but sold at a lower price into the rural communities. And the cost base was reduced because the mothers of the communities became the distributors. The first priced premium product subsidised the cost of the second product. So this is a business that's solving the social problem of malnutrition. And the distinction was they agreed to make it a social business. Now, what that means is none of the dividends go back to the shareholders, notwithstanding how profitable this could be. But this actually posed a problem the first time that they proposed it, because obviously we have a principle of profit maximisation for shareholders. Shareholders have to agree that 100% of the profits go back into solving the problem rather than going back to themselves. And so initially the lawyers all said, well, this is an impossibility, like no shareholder is going to agree to that. But when they ran their annual general meeting or their special general meeting, 98% of shareholders agreed. And instead of raising the $500,000 of working capital that they needed, they raised $35 million. Wow. And this is, you know, this isn't seen as a, an adjacency. This is seen as a business, the grameen known business that solves this problem. And what it does is it creates opportunities, employment opportunities, not only for the workers' and employees within Grameen-Danone, but also the mothers of those rural areas that have become a distribution channel. And this is a very sustainable way of people being able to make an income whilst also solving a social problem. And so the role that the private sector can have is really start to rethink how it determines it can contribute to social good. Currently, the thinking is they'll set up a foundation or they might set up a corporate social responsibility arm. But it's still based on fundamentally charitable principles of giving out grants and handouts. One thing the private sector really has the opportunity to do is create social business divisions. And that's actually a win-win for them because they can still deploy their mandate from their foundation or their corporate social responsibility charter But instead of having a charity that does it or fund charities that do it, they could create social business divisions that would be able to generate resources, become viable and fund itself. Which means money that would otherwise year on year go into being hosed into solving these social problems through a foundation can then be scaled elsewhere because they can solve adjacent social problems or solve that particular problem at speed with even more resources.
0: That's an awesome example. I I guess um, the question that's coming to mind for me is the Danone Grameen example. Sounds as though it was solving the issue of malnutrition in specific rural communities in Bangladesh. So if we're looking at large-scale aid interventions, like where we see malnutrition across very large populations, I mean, such as Bangladesh – how how do we – I presume that one social business cannot be expected to manage an entire widespread aid intervention. So how do mm. we kind of get numerous social businesses to work together um, to achieve uh, a poverty reduction, say?
1: Yeah, well, and, and this is actually interesting because you, there's one philosophy, which is Unicef's philosophy, um, is that you actually just be- – if you come from the place that every human is a born entrepreneur and humans want to contribute and create and innovate and solve problems, and they have the resources to do that because there's, for example, working capital that is offered to people who create businesses that solve social problems, it's the action of being able to solve that social problem in your street, in your city, in your district, first that matters, because it's the mindset shift first and foremost that matters. And it's creating that mindset shift first and it doesn't have to be organized because if you think about organizing these um, social businesses from a top-down approach that's you know that's almost like running before you can walk so firstly it's really getting the idea of social business out there so that people see that this is a viable way of solving social problems and then starting to think about okay once we're in more sophisticated stage then how can we start to galvanize and coordinate resources so that we can, you know, bolt onto each other and solve these problems at scale. Um, So I think it's a very, yeah, it's a very complex issue that is widespread, but the best way to tackle it is to start really small.
0: We have a lot of discussions on this show about depth versus scale. And as you said, should you really get invested in your local area and do that really well, or should you be looking at how you can scale rapidly? And I would presume that for from what you've just spoken about, the Grameen model is the former, which is not... It's both.
1: It's, it's both? actually both. It is, It's but it's a tranched version mm-hmm. because you obviously use social business as a resource generator, as a business engine to create more and more resources, resources to achieve scale. But if you start thinking about scale too soon, then you might miss the forest for the trees right you're thinking about this idea of scale but like have you actually solved the problem properly to start with um and so for us it's really about well yes you know support grassroots organizations but grassroots organizations with the potential to scale and then start thinking about well what is the next step how can we coordinate and join forces and extend and extend and extend
0: yeah right Uh, Now, when I think of social business, based on the example that you've shared there, I'm thinking of um, corporations that are operating with a social mission, but still Mm -hmm. retain their business principles. And I'm thinking of charities that have transitioned into more of a a business model where there is um, a revenue stream, which they can invest back into the charity. I guess what I'm wondering there is where do um, small and medium enterprises in in informal economies fit into this like is this
1: informal economy
0: in informal informal yeah like this seems to me like I mean I know you're focused in the Australian concept context so is there a place um for people in developing countries that have set up a, a small business um in the informal economy can they be a social business we we had Julian newton on the show last week, and we were talking about how the formal economy is you know businesses that employ people. It's it's registered businesses um, where people are formally employed, and that would be documented in paperwork and whatnot. But then the informal economy makes up like eighty to ninety percent of a lot of countries um, in Southeast Asia, at the least, where people you know might be rubbish pickers, or they might be producing handicrafts, or any kind of Ad hoc business um, th- that provides a source of income for them. So I suppose, yeah, I suppose I'm wondering: Are they? Would we call them social businesses?
1: I think that they would fall into it because there's two types of social business. Um, one where it's a business that's owned and operated by somebody who's in poverty or who's excluded, and so as the owner operator, they're making a profit, and the profit goes back to them. So that's traditionally would in the formal economy seen as a con, like as a for full- profit business. But uh, in this case, because it's solving a social problem by getting a person out of poverty or financial exclusion, it's actually seen as a social business because it's solving that social problem for them. So absolutely, they could be, so they, they would be defined as a social business. And then the second type of social business is one where the business creates uh, revenue and 100% of the profits goes back into the business, but it's not necessarily owned by the same people that are the beneficiaries. And so, in that case, in the informal economy, many businesses, especially if they're helping people in livelihoods, could be defined as a social business.
0: Yeah, awesome. Okay, I think I think that's an important distinction, and I, yeah, that's really interesting. So, I know that in your role, you're looking at social businesses in Australia. Um, so can you comment on where are we are in Australia? Like, what trends are we seeing around social business, and what sort of support do they require?
1: One hundred percent. Well, it's um. Social business as a concept more broadly is actually not very new. I mean, you've seen this in mutual companies, for example, that are set up as social businesses. In- intriguingly, cities are actually set up um, naturally as social businesses because they're creating a revenue through rates, and then those um, uh, rates are then deployed to be able to solve social problems. So, as a as a as a substance, it's not a new phenomenon. But in the organised unisocial business context, it's been around for about 10 or so years. And so some might say that the idea of social business is relatively nascent and relatively new in Australia in that particular form. Um, In terms of trends, what we're seeing for for us, Grameen Australia is actually in a really unique position where we're going through concurrently a transition phase, a discovery phase and execution phase at the same time. We've recently gone through a transformation because originally we were set up in Australia as almost an international NGO funding social businesses in the Philippines and Cambodia. And the business we had in the Philippines was microfinance as a social business in Metro Manila, helping low income women. But in Cambodia, we had a chicken farm. So we were working with scavengers, getting them off a dump site in Siem Reap, employing them as chicken farmers, increasing their income and then selling the chickens into the market. And they were quite at quite high end restaurants. And we found that last year when I joined as CEO, um, we had to make an existential choice. Do we stay in Asia and do Australia or do we focus on Australia exclusively? And so that's a choice that we made. So we demerge the companies and still retain a partnership uh, agreement with the operators of our heritage Asian projects. Now, our goal in Australia, I mean, our broad vision is helping create a world of three zeros, a world of zero poverty, zero unemployment and zero net carbon emissions, and that ties in with the UN SDGs. So in Australia, how that works tactically is our mission is really to be able to embed social business as that alternative to charity and government solving social problems and the social businesses on our platform that we help um, there's two sides of it the first side is australian microfinance so what's really exciting is that in 2017-18 we uh, started a feasibility study based off a phd on the viability of a grameen style of microfinance in australia and that feasibility report has now just been written And the findings of that are that there is a market in Australia for the Grameen style of microfinance. That's social collateral, um, five entrepreneurs, typically women, forming a group that get working capital to be able to scale and sustain their own businesses. And it's likely that the area that we will pilot the Grameen microfinancing will be Broad meadows in Victoria. That's got 22% unemployment. There's about 160 different nations represented there. And the demographic we will look at will likely be low income migrant refugee women. And so the state of this now is that we're forming a steering committee and we're talking with Professor Eunice about how to operationalize this in Australia. And we're also talking about partnering with a large financial institution with a community focus. So that's, that's the first half of our social business platform. Now, the second half is actually much more modern social businesses that require resources to help them scale. And we've got four on the platform. And when we, because, you know, we're still very new. It's only three months since our transition. But our hypothesis is that if we choose social businesses that have identified a social problem, they've got A viable market solution or one that has a pathway to viability, they've got a team and they've actually got a track record, like they're starting to make revenue, then we can help them. And in terms of the help they need, originally, we thought that our biggest value to them would be capital, that they would need capital in order to scale. But what we're finding more and more is that the businesses that we have actually need access to networks and markets. They need access to networks and markets. They need mentoring and coaching and they need professional services because they're already generating revenue. And the best example I have for that is the secret sisterhood. Um, and I know your viewers probably can't see this, but I've got some jewelry on me right now, which I'll show you on uh, Skype.
0: Oh, but, um beautiful.
1: They have this jewelry and it's got this symbol, which is a love heart with a um, the woman sign uh, blended into it. And it's a symbol of women's empowerment. And the model here is that 100% of the profits from the jewellery go towards getting women out of sex trafficking, human trafficking, domestic violence and poverty. And so what she really needs now is that she's raised, you know, in the past year generated revenue of eighty dollars to $100,000. And what's really going to help her scale up and replicate is access to different markets. So we're connecting her with different Grameen ecosystems all around the world to help facilitate that. Um, so what she needs is, influencers who can wear her jewellery so that they can get more exposure, Um, distributors, uh, access to retail markets so she can get into Maya and David Jones. She's already in the iconic. Um, That's Jackie Love, the founder of Secret Sisterhood. Um, And what she also needs is really just being able to get more and more customers to know about her brand. And so that's the kind of work that we're doing for them, plus getting them mentoring and coaching from senior business leaders to help them with their business model and just help them continue to grow so that they can solve this problem.
0: I suppose you, you've you provided so many insights and, and a lot of advice. And I, I think this will be a very practically useful episode. But if there were any parting advice you had for organisations that are thinking of becoming social businesses or charities mm. that are thinking of transitioning into social business, like how do you know that it's for you and what should you do first?
1: The first question is, if you're a charity transitioning into a social business, is it a problem that can be solved with a market solution? There are some things that you can't, you know, turn into a, a business proposition, um, you know, suicide helplines, for example. Uh, they, they may not naturally lend themselves to being a social business. They may need some kind of other types of funding. But if you can find a market solution from being able to solve your problem, so the classic one is microfinance. People are financially excluded, don't have money. One solution is charity, giving them a handout. The other solution is giving them working capital that they repay back with interest, which is a business. So that's the first test. Then the second way of thinking about, well, you know, is it for you is looking at the Grameen website and talking to us and finding out whether there's a place for you on our platform, or if there's anyone we can connect you with to give you some advice on how you can transition from being a charity into a social business. In terms of social, in terms of small to medium enterprises or other businesses that are looking to turn themselves into a social business, um, the best way to start is, well, firstly, do you have a charitable arm? Is that some way that you can start to test your um, uh, decision to become a social business? Uh, and in that case, then you can definitely talk to us about how to do that as well. Um, but if you want to set up a social business from scratch, at this stage, there's um, not many accelerators in Australia that do this. But one that does it really well is the Monash Sustainable Development Institute in Melbourne They have the Leave No One Behind program, and we've actually incubated Many social businesses and two of them are now on our platform, the two winners. They're a fantastic place to start uh, if you want to develop a social business in that context. And there's also centres in Australia. There's five centres in Australia, two in South Australia, one in Queensland, one in New South Wales, and one in Melbourne. And you can go to them and talk to them about how you can turn your business idea into a social business. Um, And then, of course, talking to Grameen Australia. And, you know, we'd love to talk to anybody who's interested in social business. Please go to our website to find out more. We've got a video on there on what a social business is. We've got examples of who our social businesses are. And of course, we've got contact details for advisors that you can get in touch with to find out more.
0: Fantastic. Super inspiring. Um, I have no doubt that a lot of our guests will be interested in that. So, Kat, thank you so much for sharing your insights. I could talk to you for hours about all the philosophical questions that underpin these sectors, um, but I think the insights that you've shared are really valuable. So, thank you for your time.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Rachel. Really appreciate it.